Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 7 through 13. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the word of the Lord. The fact that he is now head and shoulders taller than me is just an optical illusion. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Y'all, it's the word of God. Uh, it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Uh, would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we, um, we love you, we love your word, and we're thankful, Lord, that we get to get into it and it into us. Lord, we, we would ask now uh, that your Holy Spirit would help us uh, to see what we need to see, uh, that we would see that wherein we fail, Jesus, the Son of God, on our behalf, mightily prevails. We ask it in his glorious name, the seed who crushed the serpent's head, and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. So she came running up to me with her iPhone. She said, you'll never believe whose number I have stored in here. We have a friend who is, a, she's an amazing singer, an artist, recording artist. She was doing a session, and the producer of the session called out to his assistant to give him a phone number because he needed to call an artist out in L.A. And so when his assistant gave him the number, our friend uh, simply took note and on the download, typed the number into her iPhone and stored it. And she said, I think we ought to call him. I said, that's stalking. You can't do it. She said, I'm scared. I said, you ought to be. She said, but it's Steve Perry from Journey. I said, give me the phone. <laughs> give it to me now. Listen, I'm going to date myself, but, but for those of you who are like 45 and older, I'm going to take you back to your high school prom. I am convinced the greatest rock singer of all time is none other than Steve Perry. Can I get a witness? And understand this, if you don't agree with me, you just might need to pray about that. In fact, I was just preaching with the folks over at, uh, at In Town, and literally, I kid you not, Diane, you'll back me up. We left, get in the car, she starts the car, as soon as she starts the car, it's the providence of God, the opening piano intro to, want to take a guess? Don't stop believing. That was the Lord's way of saying, David, preach it. I agree. <laughs> so I take the phone, and uh, I dial the number just to see if it indeed was Steve Perry. And I, I dial the number, and that unmistakable voice, I have heard a hundred interviews with him. That voice, so warm, it was so inviting. Really, I mean, honestly, I was surprised at how engaging and, and how inviting even he was. Uh, I felt like we just grew so much closer at that moment in our relationship. Of course, it was his voicemail. And uh, so I wanted to say, hey, Steve, man, David, Nashville, hey, next time you're in town, hit me up. I love you. But all that came out, I was just scared to death, all that came out was this sort of short, chirping little sound like a, like a little finch, <laughs> is what I must have, just, just the greatness of that moment, being on the other end of the line with Steve Perry from, from Journey. Let, let me ask you, if you could talk to anyone, if you had the opportunity just to get to know anyone, sit down, talk to them, kind of pour your heart out, get to know them, and, and they, you, who, who, would it, who would it be? Now, you probably tracking with me. This is a sermon on prayer. Uh, it's a sermon on the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, Patrick Scott's been taking us through the Sermon on the Mount, wherein Jesus has been teaching us about 
kingdom life, that the kind of kingdom life that his gospel enables and expects. And now he wants to say it has to be fueled by prayer. A lot could be said about the Lord's Prayer. Sermon after sermon could be preached on stanza after stanza on the Lord's Prayer. But we're going to kind of lift up about 30,000 feet, sort of fly over and just look down on the Lord's Prayer, some of the main contours. But, but I love what that often ostentatious Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, he lived from 1483 to 1546. And this is what he said about the Lord's Prayer. He said, to this day, I suckle at the Lord's Prayer like a child. And, and as an old man, I eat and drink from it, and I never get my fill. He said this in response to his barber, Peter, who asked him, Dr. Luther, would you help me learn how to pray? And so Luther went and set quill to paper and wrote an extensive, lengthy, theologically rich treatise on prayer entitled, are you ready for this? A Simple Way to Pray. Now, uh, not everyone uh, would acknowledge the value of prayer. I, I follow a couple of uh, atheist Instagram accounts. Because, frankly, they're, they're, they're quite witty, honestly, at times. And you get to see sort of the way that, that the headier stuff of the Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris's and, and, uh, and Christopher Hitchens of the world have sort of been turned into memes. And sometimes, you know, it's, it's rather insightful. I saw one uh, this week on prayer, and I have to admit, it's, it's witty. Um, it goes like this. Oh, so you'll pray for me? Thanks. I'll be sure to write a letter to Santa Claus for you. Now, rather than recoiling at that, there may be a place in your heart where you're kind of like, man, I've, I've got to admit, David, I've wondered at times if prayer is really much more effective than, than writing a letter to Santa Claus. Um, we need help. Right? Prayer's hard. Prayer's mysterious. Um, I, I tell students when I teach at seminaries, I say, look, it's going to be hard. You're going to need help because pride's going to beat you out of the ministry or the ministry will beat the pride out of you, one of the two. Let's hope it's the latter. But along the way, you need traveling partners. You need men and women who have, who have trod this path ahead of you. They've got a lot to teach you. I have an old entourage that, that travels with me, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Van Til, uh, Charles Hodge, just, just a host of people, John Bunyan. Um, I have a host of traveling partners, and they've taught me a lot about prayer frankly, over, over the years. If you could eavesdrop on any conversation, like between two people you admire, who, who would it be? I wish I could go back to 1953. 1953 was the year that my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia was published, The Silver Chair. And I wish I could be on that boat to Ireland with David Martin Lloyd-Jones and C.S. Lewis. Lloyd-Jones actually uh, really admired the writings of C.S. Lewis. Lloyd-Jones himself, a deep man of prayer. And so he asked C.S. Lewis, uh, when, pray tell, are you going to write your next book? And Lewis responds to him, when I better understand prayer. About seven years later, Lewis was standing at the graveside of his wife, Joy Davidman. She had passed away. His heart was just rent in a million pieces. And it's around that time that he began struggling and processing those things. And he wrote a book that's dear to many of us who know what it's like to have the very epicenter of our hearts ripped apart by grief and loss, entitled A Grief Observed. And, and that's where he said, you, you hear Pastor Scott uh, quote this a lot, but go to him when your need is desperate, uh, when, uh, when no other help uh, seems to be anything but vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that silence, you may as well turn away. He goes on to say uh, that this doesn't tempt me not to believe in God. It scares me that this is who God really is. He's just being honest about that raw, hard place in his, in his heart. 
it's not long after this that he uh, writes the book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. You see, sometimes the Lord takes us through a crucible so that we can better understand uh, what prayer is about. It wasn't so much an instructional manual on prayer, more of an invitation to intimacy uh, in, in prayer. Uh, that's, that's what he was, was trying, trying to do there. Um, here's, here's what I want us to do. I want us to think not so much about the steps of prayer. I want us to think about, uh, first of all, the one teaching us to pray. The one teaching us to pray. And I want you to know that the hard work of prayer has been done for you. The one teaching us to pray. I wonder how many times the disciples eavesdropped on the Lord, drawing away and, and having those intimate conversations with his heavenly Father. I wonder how many times they listened to him pray. They wanted, they wanted in on it. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, verse 2, they go to him and they say, Master, teach us to pray. And he gives them this prayer as a, as a model prayer. Teach us to pray. Jesus, think about it. The very Son of God. Jesus, as the Nicene Creed says, very God of a very God, nonetheless needed prayer. He needed to pray. And so he withdrew to pray. What is it about my heart, though, that I will acknowledge Jesus needed prayer, but, but I can get along quite well without it? What is it about my heart that to this day, the thought of being on the other end of the voicemail of Steve Perry from Journey, I get tingly all over, still visceral for me. Yet the thought of entering into prayer, uh, that sacred intimacy with the very God who created me, who second by second gives me every beat of my heart, who causes the seraphim around him to cover their faces as they fly around crying, holy, holy, holy. The very God who stripped away the grave clothes of my rebellion and sin and clothed me, Isaiah 61.10, with the robes of Christ's righteousness. The very God who delights in the buzz of a bug's wing in the foliage of the floor of the Grand Canyon. At the same time, his fingertips spin, spin the rings of Saturn just for one display of his, of his glory and his delight. And I think of intimacy and prayer with him, and at times I'm like, eh, whatever. What is it about my heart? I love what Tim Keller says. He says, to fail to pray then is not merely to break some religious rule. It is a failure to treat God as God. So we need help there. Um, perhaps the, the traveling partner who has meant more for me than anyone else, been more formational for me theologically, pastorally, spiritually, is Jonathan Edwards. He lived from 1703 to 58, wore a powdered wig, you know, that that gives you the, the picture. And, and maybe when you think of Jonathan Edwards, it, it takes you back to ninth grade English, right, where you read snippets of sinners in the hands of an angry God in your English anthology textbook. And you think of Edwards as this sort of wild-eyed, angry preacher. The reality is he preached so sweetly about the desirability of Christ, what he called the loveliness and the beauty of Christ. He spoke of Jesus as being the cream of all the believer's pleasures. My favorite sermon by Edwards he preached in 1735, and it's entitled, The Most High of Prayer-Hearing God. The Most High of Prayer-Hearing God. And, and he has this to say about the one teaching us to pray. He says this about Jesus. He says, by his atonement, that's just a word that speaks of Jesus being our substitute, taking our place on the cross, paying the debt our sin had, had accrued. Jesus, by his atonement, by his blood, has taken away our guilt so that our sin is not a separating wall, not a cloud through which our prayers cannot pass. He's saying that by what Jesus did on the cross, as theologians refer to it as his passive obedience, from the word pasco in the Greek, which means suffering. By his suffering obedience, he has secured the invitation of our prayers. 
Number two, he says, by his life of obedience to the law of God on behalf of lawbreakers like me and like you, by what theologians call his active obedience to the law of God in our place, he has secured the hearing of our prayers. And thirdly, he says, by the intercession of Jesus at the right hand of God, he has done the same thing. He, he says he hand-delivers our prayers to the Father, right? So when you're tempted to think, look, I've, I've been a screw-up the last month. I really feel like praying, but I know I dare not come. I need to take a couple of weeks, kind of clean my act up a little bit, kind of get God satisfied with me. Then I'll venture to pray. How can you improve on Jesus handing your prayers over to the Father, Right? This Jesus who prayed, prays for you now. Hebrews 7.25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through faith in him. For he always lives to make intercession for them. What a prayer partner. Jesus praying for you even, even now. Another of my traveling partners, Charles Hodge, he was a theologian at Old Princeton. Very pastoral hearted. He said, when we are taught to pray in the name of Jesus, we are urged to what we're called to do there, when we're taught pray in Jesus' name, we are urged, he said, what Christ is and what he has done as the reason for the hearing of our prayers. In other words, to say in Jesus' name, amen, is not simply to tack on this sort of traditional, you know, ending to a prayer. When we say in Jesus' name, I pray, we are speaking of who he is, what he has done, is doing, and ever will do for us as the very reason our prayers can be heard in the first place. That's the one teaching us to pray. Here's the thing, prayer's hard work. It is, let's admit it, we struggle with it. But understand this, the real hard work of prayer has been done for you and is being done for you by your Savior even now. So go to the Father, go to the Father through Jesus. Speaking of the Father, the one to whom we pray. The one to whom we pray, a loving Father whose heart is so very for you. Jesus says, when you pray, pray this way, our Father that's good news. Our Father. Now look, I, I know just, just for some of us, the very mention of the word Father takes us to raw, hard places. Um, father wounds can be very real for some of us. Father wounds can be real, but understand this, your Father's welcome is for you too, especially for you. Your Father's welcome is so beautiful, so real. Edwards said um, this about our Father in prayer the posture of your heavenly father toward you when you come to pray. He says this, when you come to pray, your father's posture toward you is one wherein he wants to be conquered by your prayers. That's what he says, conquered. He wants to be, and I quote, overcome by your prayers, by your needs. Let me ask, daddies, how many of you in here, when your little boy, your little girl comes to you and they pour out their heart, you're all ears, you're all heart, you're all arms, you're all hands, they've got you in the palm of their hand, you want, your posture is so for them. Could you begin to believe that your father views you that way? That his heart is, is for you like that? Yet this father, waiting to be overcome by our prayers and our needs and, and our wants, Jesus says his name is to be hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. The Greek word there is hagiastheto. That just sounds holy, doesn't it? We're, we're, we're to holify his name. We're to, we're to consider his name holy, right? Because it is. A few weeks ago, we had an assembly of students in here, and, and one of our seniors closed in prayer, uh, Kate Klausner, and, and, and in her prayer, she just very simply, sincerely said, thanks God, you're the best. 
And, and there's some profound theological truth to that. He is the best and he's for you. Yet his name is to be hallowed. Psalm 102, 15, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. Psalm 115, 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Our Father's name is to be hallowed. But this Father, whose name is to be hallowed, says in Romans 8, 15, call me Abba, call me Papa, call me Daddy. That's how I want you to know me. J.I. Packer says you can sum up the whole of New Testament Christianity if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption, of knowing that he has called you his daughter and his son, and he wants you to call him Abba, call him Papa. So see, prayer is not just a mere going through the motions. Prayer is the pinnacle of our theology. It's not just therapeutic self-talk, right? It is us actually coming and as Thomas Watson, that old Puritan, once said, unbosoming ourselves to the Father, laying our cares and our anxieties before him. And he says that when we do that, our Father unbosoms himself to us and he reveals himself and and he knows us and we know him, right? Being known by him and, and knowing him, that's what your soul craves. Whether we realize it or not, our hearts become so confused and tired and, and just checked out and defeated. And what we need is, is this, because listen, when we pray, we practice and plead what we say we believe about our Father. And what do we believe about our Father is that he is good, right? Understand, I want you to know your father will never, ever put up with you. Your father in heaven, he's not tolerating any of y'all. He will never put up with you. We put up with stuff we don't like. We tolerate stuff we don't like. He's madly in love with you. He'll never tolerate you. He'll ever only delight over you. He is good, right? We sing that. I've heard a thousand stories of what they think you're like. But I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night, and you tell me that you're pleased. Some of you need to hear afresh that your father's pleased with you. He'll ever only delight. You tell me that you're pleased and that I'm never alone, and then we sing it. Sing it. You're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. That's who I am. It's who I am. It's who I am. Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God be for you, who can be against you? He who did not despair his own son, how will he not also graciously give us all things? God is not a miser with his grace. He will graciously give you all things. And so Jesus says, look, is there any legit reason you have not to run to a father whose posture is like that towards you? Do you need daily bread? Go to the father who's never failed to meet your needs and he'll supply your need. Do you need to be reminded of how much you've been forgiven so that you can extend forgiveness? Run to your Father. Are you struggling with temptation? Run to your Father and He will give you what Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection for Christ, which will make all of those release valves that we tug at and pull at 
right, when we find ourselves overcome by our tiredness and our anger and our lust and those kinds of things and saying, satisfy me, give me meaning. He will give us a new affection for Christ, which will in time cause those things to pale in comparison. Run, run to your Father, the one to whom we pray. His heart is so, so very much for you. But Jesus also wants us to understand something about we who pray. Uh, and it is this, we are praying priests indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's who you are. You are praying priests indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Prayer not only tells you that you are desperately needy, but it makes some profoundly, theologically powerful statements about who you are in Christ. And listen, have you noticed kind of a Trinitarian thread running through the points of my sermon here? The one teaching us to pray, Jesus, the one to whom we pray, the Father, the Spirit, making of us a praying priesthood. It was J.I. Packer who said that the Trinity is the basis of the gospel, and the gospel is a declaration of the Trinity in action. And it's true. Our Father chooses us. He sets his forever love upon us from before the foundation of the world. Jesus purchases us. The Holy Spirit comes and regenerates us. It means he brings us from death to life, from darkness to light. But the same is true for prayer. It's the Father who bids us come. It's the Son who intercedes for us. It's the Spirit who reminds us that we are no longer aliens and strangers, Ephesians 2.19, but that we are, Revelation 5.10, a kingdom of priests to our God. And so when we pray for each other, when we carry out the priesthood of all believers, we're just being who we are. You see, prayer is not only us practicing and pleading what we say we believe about the Father. Prayer is us practicing and believing what the Father says is true about us. So we come and we pray because 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are a holy nation. And would you believe me if I told you that the same Greek word there that describes you as holy is the same Greek word in the Lord's Prayer that says the Father's name is to be hallowed. When we pray, we hallow the Father's name, but the Father sees you as hallowed in his sight. He looks at you and he sees you as precious and holy in his sight because you are covered in the very holiness and righteousness of Christ. That's how precious you are to him. That's what prayer does. Now, there's, there's a, a philosopher, and, and frankly, um, i got to admit, I, I really appreciate him. Uh, Frederick Nietzsche who lived from 1844 to 1900. He was no friend of Christianity. In fact, he was a virulent opponent of Jesus and anything associated with Christianity. Uh, he spoke of what he called the Ubermensch, German word for the overman. And he says that we are to, with autonomy and self-will, will ourselves to power as we make evolutionary progress. The weak must get out of our way and we will rise over them through self-will and establish ourselves. There is no such thing as morality. There is no such thing as truth. Christianity, he says, is, is a myth. And so we must rise up within ourselves and will ourselves to be the Ubermensch, to be the overman. 
he had a treatise entitled The, the Gay Science, and uh, that's the one, uh, section 125, where he gives the story of the madman. Perhaps you've read of the madman who comes in and declares the death of God because we no longer need God. We've, we've grown beyond our need for such superstitious things. Three sections later, 128, he has a little essay entitled The Value of Prayer. And he says, prayer has been invented for those people who never really have thoughts of their own and who do not know any elevation of the soul or at least do not notice it when it occurs. What are they to do at sacred sites and in all significant situations in life where calm and some sort of dignity are called for? What religion wants from the masses is no more than that they should keep still with their eyes, hands, legs, and other organs. That way they become more beautiful for a while and look more like human beings. Now I appreciate Nietzsche. He was an existential nihilist. I appreciate him because I think he's quite honest and frankly prophetic and brilliant in ways. But what he's saying is uh, those who give themselves over to superstitions like Christianity and go through these empty rituals like prayer, they think they appear like human, but they are less than human. You must will your own self to power if you're going to realize what it means to be human. But I would suggest when we pray and we learn more about who God is, we become more truly human uh, prayer is the way to true self-understanding. We, we know who we are in light of who he is, and, and as we draw near, he, he defines us, right? I'm, I'm helped by a little book like this, The Valley of Vision, precious little book to me, because there are prayers in here. I, I, would, I would urge you to go get a copy. Prayers in here that, that tell me things like, and I quote, Lord Jesus, let me find a covert or a covering in thy appeasing wounds. Do you view the wounds of Jesus that way? I read the, the prayers here, and, and, and I quote, quarry my heart deep and fill it with overflowing rivers of living water. I read and hear prayers that say, I am a poor gospel-abusing sinner, and it reminds me of my desperate need of the Lord Jesus, and I'm, I'm helped. <laughs> Another of my traveling partners is an amazing uh, Southern Gothic author. She lived from 1925 to 64, Flannery O'Connor. Some of you love her work. And if you've read Flannery O'Connor, you know that she rarely tidies up a story with a nice bow. You read her stories and it leaves you somewhat disturbed and she likes it that way because she's trying to show grace in the darkness of, of real life. But I stumbled upon her prayer journal, sweet, sweet little book where she's just kind of journaling her prayers so that she won't be distracted. And, and she says this, it, it does not take much to make us realize what fools we are but the little it takes is long in coming. I see my ridiculous self by degrees. One thing I've seen this week, and it's been a particular week, is my constant seeing of myself as what I want to be. So we come and pray, and, and the Lord reminds us of our weakness and our need, but then, but then he says, okay, I'm never going to reject you. I'm always only going to delight over you. Now, in light of that, here's, here's who you can be in Christ and desire it, long for it. Call out to me for that very thing. And you know, Calvin says basically the same thing. The institutes of the Christian religion seem rather daunting, but in book one, he says, we'll never know ourselves until we know God. We consider who God is and his holiness and his purity, and that gives us an understanding of who we are and our need. And then you jump to book three, and he writes forever and a day on the doctrine of prayer. And he says that when we pray, I love this, all right, buckle up, when we pray, we dig up treasures from the gospels. Isn't that incredible? And so, as a kingdom of priests, we pray for his will to be done, for his kingdom to come, right? We pray that we would be delivered from evil. But when we pray, uh, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, when we pray, thy kingdom come, right? Our prayer is, is not a license for passivity. 
Prayer does not give us a pass, as it were. Prayer does not lead to self-satisfied inactivity. Prayer fuels self-denial, missional obedience. Uh, Ricky Gervais, comedian, hilarious most of the time, he, he really is. He, he uh, identifies as an atheist, um, but he says some really, really, um, I think, insightful things. Cheeky, insightful. Um, he's English, so of course he's cheeky. Um, I wish I could be cheeky. I try, but I just, not cool enough to pull it off. But he tweeted on November 29, 2015, this. I've just discovered praying. This is going to save me from bleeping millions in charity donations. Only he didn't say bleeping. Now, here's the thing. I have to search my own heart and ask, do, do I resonate with that? Do, do I view prayer as, as giving me a pass? <laughs> Understand this, prayer is not a pass. It fuels passion. It leads not to inactivity, but to initiative. Praying thy kingdom come leads to kingdom compassion and courage and conviction. Let, let me give you an example. I see some of you have been admiring my pants here. First service, I walked in, John Art looked at my pants. I said, there's a story behind these. He said, I certainly hope so. <laughs> Girl in our church, she and her dad, uh, K-Mac, Kendall McAvoy, which, where are you, Kendall? There you are, Kendall, up there in the corner. Kendall, her dad, went to the Rift Valley region in Kenya doing some medical missions work, and they met a pastor there whom the Lord had led to extricate a little handful of young girls, young teen, 13, 14-year-old girls, out of evil, out of uh, being stripped in more ways than one, but certainly stripped of their dignity and their humanity, uh, being used and abused. I won't go into any further detail. You, you probably understand what I'm talking about. And he's taken them into his home, feeding them, discipling them, educating them, giving them safety restoring to them the dignity of their humanity. And so Kendall was praying for them, but, but that prayer, right, led to a desire to, to, to give kingdom pushback to the fallout of the fall in those girls' lives. And so she started a ministry called Pants with a Purpose. Pants with a Purpose. May not change the world, but will change the world for these girls, right? They're, they're locally sourced in Kenya, shipped over here, you buy them, and the proceeds go to help those girls and, and to educate and to feed them and make sure that they're, that they're safe. See, understand this. When we find the kids in our church doing good, we need to celebrate it. We need our party pants on. We need to celebrate it. And let me just say, by God's grace, in, in the ministries of Derek and, and his team and Casey and his team, we ought to expect more of that going on. Because here was a girl who said, I'm going to put my pants where my prayers are. Now, please understand if you feel the desire to email me tomorrow and say, David, I just think it was highly inappropriate for you to wear a pair of britches like that in the pulpit, I'm going to reply. I'm going to say, I, I get it. I understand. Thank you for indulging me this once. But I'm also going to include the link, www.pantswithapurpose.org, and say, go get yourself a pair. In fact, Mother's Day is coming up. You can't get these at Walgreens. You might be tempted to go to Walgreens about 9.30 or 10 at night, the night before, and buy something there because you've blown it off, and, and now you're in a hurry. You can go online now and get some pants with a purpose and and give a little kingdom pushback. A little kingdom pushback to the fallout of, of the fall. 
It was Martin Luther who said, now that God has dealt with us so kindly, has given us all that is his and has himself become our own so that through faith we have all things that are good and needful for us. What are we to do? Are we to live in indolence, i.e. inactivity, passivity? (laughs) No, thus faith saves us, but love moves us to give ourselves to our neighbor since our neighbor needs have been, since our needs have been met. This means that faith receives from God and love gives to our neighbor. A lot more could be said, but we need to hear this table say something to us now. And we need to come with open hands and open hearts and um, hear what's going to be said to us here. Thomas Watson, the same Puritan who said that when we pray, the Father unbosoms himself to us, says that our Father also unbosoms himself in the Holy Supper. And he says, let me, let me, let you know me a little more intimately. And when we come to the table, this table defines us as we draw near and we get to know ourselves in light of his, of his gospel. And what this table is going to say to you is here there is no snack-sized gospel. A snack-sized gospel which would say that Jesus has done enough to cover some of our sins, but now you need to get busy doing enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds to cover the rest. A snack-sized gospel is no gospel at all. You're coming here to this table for the full course meal, the gospel that assures you all of your sins, past, present, and future, were paid for at the cross, and you are eternally and unchangeably accepted in Christ. And as we come, right, we need to celebrate. We make a big deal of that here, right? This is a family meal. We're going to love on each other. We're going to talk. We're going to celebrate. Right? Get your party pants on because the gospel is true and we need to push back against the fallout of the fall. But you might want to sort of flex a little priestly muscle, if I can say it that way, and pray for each other. There are going to be people on either side up here who will be willing to pray for you, but you can put your arms around each other right there in the pews and you can pray over each other. You can pray with each other. You can pray the Lord's Prayer together. <laughs> Right? Be who you are as, as priests. And, and if you say, well, David, I'd like to, but I'm just not good at prayer. I'm going to leave prayer to the professionals, right? The pastors, the Sunday school teachers, the ministry workers. Here's, here's the thing. Another old Puritan, Richard Sibbs, said it this way. The Holy Spirit can pick sense out of a confused prayer. That's good news, isn't it? You have what you need. You really do. Spurgeon said you have a great need. That's one. And number two, you have a great Christ for your need. So let's come and take heart and let's lift our hands and let's lift each other's hands and arms because some of us may be weak in here this morning and let's pray and let's prepare our hearts for the Holy Supper. Gracious Father, we come now thankful that you are who you say you are, that your heart is so inclined toward us that you want to be conquered by your boys and girls. And so we're going to come now, Lord. We're going to come in weakness And we're going to come with a joyful expectation that you are going to touch our lips and we are going to taste the sweetness of Jesus and we will say that he is good. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.